Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday 16th of February. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial, or you can have a listen from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue, from where you can stream our broadcast and you will also find a number of previously aired episodes that have been uploaded as podcasts. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash out of the blue radio. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that 3CR is broadcasting from and pay our respects to their elders past and present and to future and emerging generations. My name's Andrew Christie from Melbourne Polytechnic and Marine Care Point Cook and uh, interesting day today, very hot, and uh, not hot, uh, very humid sort of conditions around, 25 degrees with a light easterly breeze. As usual, uh, please be careful if you're uh, getting into our beautiful bay or waterways in the state of Victoria. Today we've got uh, James Whitmore in the house. How are you today, James? I'm very good, Andrew. Thanks. That's the way. Um, we got... Uh, uh, it's actually a subscriber drive for uh, 3CR uh, this weekend. James, did you want to have some uh, have some words on that? Yeah, I just wanted to remind everyone to sign up as a 3CR subscriber. Some of you are already 3CR subscribers, so but now's the perfect time to renew. Um, as we all know, 2020 started out awfully for communities and the environment in Australia, and um, now more than ever we need to mobilise and stand up against the forces of ecological destruction. Um And the essence of any social movement is communication. And community radio is a vital space where we can talk and organise free from vested interests. So you can subscribe or renew at www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Or you can call 03 9419 8377 during business hours. Sounds good. Thanks for that, James. Okay, uh, what's on the uh, what's on the agenda for the show today, James? In a nutshell. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, you know the extreme summer that we've just faced, Andrew, and um, not just what's happened on the land, but what's been happening in the oceans and how that's related to what um, has been happening on the land. And also because there's a big National Day of Action next Saturday, the twenty second of February. So that's a big call for action on climate change and. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good, mate. Very, very topical stuff. Well, let's get into that. Uh, We'll be jumping straight into that with James Whitmore after these brief announcements. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. 
You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. So, James, uh, can you give us a bit of an outline of, uh, you know, your, your thoughts on what's been happening this summer and how it all relates to the, uh, the aquatic side of things? Yeah, so one thing I think that's really interesting about this summer, Andrew, is that, you know, we've talked a lot about the land. Um, we've obviously seen terrible fires across the south and smoke in the cities and just recently, we've seen um, hailstorms and flooding in eastern Australia on top of the drought. Um, it's been an absolutely wild ride. But um, it's really interesting if we take a step back, a lot of what's happening is actually related to the oceans. Like, yes. um, so a lot of things that affect Australia's climate, um, and one of the most famous, of course, is El Nino, which is um, related to the movement of warm water around the Pacific Ocean. Yes. Um, and you might be familiar with its um, its sister, La Nina, La Nina yep. which causes often causes flooding in eastern Australia. But this year, there was none of that. Yeah. And so what happened this year um, is actually something that happened over the Indian Ocean, um, which is a climate driver, is what um, people like the Bureau of Meteorology call it, yes. called the Indian Ocean Dipole. And much like El Nino, the Indian Ocean Dipole is related to the movement of warm water around the Indian Ocean. Yep. So this year, the, the Dipole, it's not a very nice name. It's a, bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit of a chunky term. But the IOD, as they call it, <laughs> was in its positive phase. Um, and it was actually one of the strongest positive phases on record. Um, and um, what that means is that warm water was pooling over the Middle East near the Arabian Gulf. Right. And what happens when that happens is that it draws moisture away from Australia. So the water around northwest Australia is slightly cooler, and that means it's drier. Um, so that's one thing that was causing the dryness over Australia. Um, and this thing, the IOD, the Indian Ocean Dipole, was only discovered in the late 90s. Yes. But climate scientists are very clever at um, figuring out when these things happened in the past, they look at things like tree rings and they look at historical weather records and they can see when these events happened before the thing was actually discovered. So we know that this was one of the strongest Indian Ocean dipole, positive Indian Ocean dipoles on record. So that was already there. Yeah. And then in late spring, the Bureau of Meteorology noticed something really like crazy happening over Antarctica. They noticed that um, the air in the upper atmosphere over Antarctica, not the atmosphere that we live in, but the, the layer of atmosphere above that was suddenly heating up. Um, and they called it sudden stratospheric warming, which oh. is another, again, one of those chunky terms. But um, it's kind of a bit terrifying because the Bureau said that they had never, that it had only been seen once before. And what that meant was that it weakened winds that normally circulate in the upper atmosphere. And what that did is that it pulled, um, pushed the westerly winds that flow around the Antarctic um, and bring rain and um, cold weather to Australia further north. Um, and you might think, oh, well, that's going to mean more rain and cold weather for Australia. Mm -hmm. But it only affects southern Australia, so Victoria and Tasmania. And that's exactly what we saw, yeah. wasn't it? We, yeah, like, absolutely. All through spring in Melbourne, we were going, oh, when's, when's the warm weather going to arrive? And we got, really, we got those spikes of like 40 degrees. Yes. Um, but then it was just it kind was of, it was like summer had never arrived. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's drawing moisture away from eastern Australia, which it, when you think about it, it's exactly where the fire started. Yes, so that hence all the dryness. And exactly. Really so it was just a confluence box. of like these 
things that made Eastern Australia an absolute tinderbox. And then, of course, on top of that is actual climate change itself. So we know that in 2019, Australia had its warmest year on record. It was 1.52 degrees above average, um, which beat the previous record by a near full degree. Wow. Um, And it was also the driest year on record. So if you spread out the rainfall across the whole continent, we only had 277 mils. Um, Obviously, some areas had much more than that and some had less. But if you spread it all out, you get 277 mils. Um, And the previous lowest record was in it was over 100 years ago in 1902 during what's known as the Federation drought um, when the continent had 314 mils. So by late spring, um, as we know, the Bureau of Meteorology and firefighters, they were saying this is going to be a really bad year. Yeah. yeah. Um, And those messages were getting out and the firefighters were calling on the federal government. They were trying to arrange meetings and trying to get more equipment on the ground. And we know some of those meetings didn't actually happen. (laughs) And so that left us in this situation um, come December when, well, actually the fire started much earlier, but they really kicked off in December um, where the federal government was playing catch up. Um, And we know that there were delays in getting equipment from overseas like water bombers and those big planes that dump water. Yeah. Um, And yeah, so we're just in this situation of catch up and... um, it's and we've we've all seen the impacts That's of incredible. you know it's been a really interesting summer but the impacts of that of those hot temperatures and that dryness aren't just limited to the land so yes. that we have seen these awful awful fires but you know um, at the same time as all this is happening WA has saw, saw one of its most extensive marine heat waves ever recorded so about this was in early December on the ABC um, a scientist at um, the University of WA was saying that he'd never seen a heat wave that extended from the Kimberley to South Australia wow. um, and so it's the most extensive marine heat wave that the state had seen since they was, began recording this um, in the early 90s. And wow. we know marine heat waves are absolutely devastating. Yes. Like, um, you know, um, they've seen, they'd seen fish kills, um, they'd seen crabs dying on mud flats, and particularly shellfish industries. So oysters were dying around um, on the Pilbara um, and even abalone down in the southwest. So they have a huge impact. And so, Andrew, you work, on, you work at Point Cook. Um, yeah. do, you, do you ever see the kind of impacts of, like, warmer waters? Is the bay getting warmer? Look, it's hard. I, I certainly don't notice it when I'm when I'm out there in my wetsuit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it I mean, still pre- feels pretty of, cold, doesn't it? <laughs> it kind of sounds enticing to me to get some uh, nice warmer water in there. But, uh, no, in all seriousness, I, I think it's one of those things that's extremely difficult to put a finger on. Like, mm. unless you're really looking for something, and that's what's really become evident to me over the last few years when we've had some nice... Uh, we've been lucky enough to secure some funded projects around Undaria, uh, mm. the the Japanese kelp and all these sorts of things. But uh, the thing that really uh, has come home to me is that unless you're looking for something specifically, you know, you don't necessarily record it and and you, you don't really, uh, you can't really tell. Now, interestingly, when I was out um, in in the bay uh, end of January, I was seeing some Undaria. Now, they're, they're, they're plants, they're, they're macroalgae that basically seem to grow better during the colder months of the year. But we're seeing some that appear to be growing actually all year round. Um, that's and, very and they're pretty small, but uh, yeah, one of the ones you'd think, well, if it was getting warmer, that goes counter to what you'd think. If it's getting warmer, then Undaria might become a bit more scarce. Mm. But uh, then again, uh, nature's probably finding a way. And exactly, getting that's some right. that are pushing through. So I don't really know. Probably the one that... <clears throat> 
I can most sort of relate to in terms of uh, water temperature and warming and the effect that El Nino and these things have had. The the theory doing the rounds at the moment from, uh, I know Paul Carnell from Deakin Uni amongst others has sort of hypothesised that with the sheer number of sea urchins we've got at Point Cook at the moment, they're going through to the extent where Parks Vic has instituted some urchin culls in the sanctuary to try and get things back in balance. And uh, back in January 2018, they went through and culled 17,000 of these urchins because they were just everywhere and they were eating them themselves out of house and home essentially um, but the the idea there was that with that savage El Nino inspired drought that we got that extended you know right up until the Black Saturday bushfires of 09 I think it was pretty much uh, 2003 2004 onwards that we up to 2009 that we got that massive dry spell um, it's been known for a while that urchins are very susceptible to freshwater inputs so in other words you get a great big downpour of rain freshwater runs into the bay and the urchins tend to die off you get these mass mortality events amongst the urchins perfectly natural but they weren't getting that there was none of the the uh, the die-offs that were occurring because it was just dry. To give you an idea of how that drought uh, functioned, we had um, an abalone farm, ocean um, ocean wave uh, seafoods down at uh, Lara, and what they were finding was that um, the salinity of the bays, generally around you know 35, 36, maybe 37 parts per thousand. They uh, this year that we went there for a tour, I think it was about 05, 06 from memory. The salinity reached 42. Mm. So the sheer amount of evaporation that was going on with no fresh water inputs was just causing the water to get more and more salty mm. so that's one effect where we we, we think that some of the the, the climate uh, you know that that drought type condition and possibly the warming facilitated this situation where the urchins ran out of control because of course then there was increasing urbanization mm. more nutrients hitting the bay lots of food for the urchins and they just went on a spree and just started eating you know huge amounts of macroalgae with their population started to boost yeah so and yeah always it's like a confluence of lots of different things isn't it it's like yeah, yeah. as you say the urbanization on top of climate related effects and things exactly. like that exactly so the so the urchins they're eating they're eating habitat for other things. Exactly. Is that the concern That's here? That's right. They're basically forming these barrens. So you get a whole bunch of urchins on a boulder that used to have lots of pretty macroalgae and mm. they're going through and basically bulldozing and sitting there with their little mouth parts and grazing away at all the stuff that's on the rocks. And you're just getting whole areas of bare rock. Mm. Uh, and when that happens, you've got you know something that's probably best described as a marine desert. Mm. There's lots of sand and mud and that's about it. Uh, and lots and lots of sea urchins everywhere. Uh, mm. So it's a, a really bad sort of a... a a situation and that's where Parks Vic have instituted this cull where they've gone through and smashed up all these urchins um, with help from the volunteer groups and everything and the, the effects that we're, we're seeing at this point in time are very very promising mm -hmm. uh, to give you an idea of the sorts of numbers of urchins we were doing some 10 by 10 square metres 100 square metre plots um, with the control treatments that were left alone we were counting 86 urchins and then the culls that have been done three times a year they were down to 10 mm -hmm. so it's really having a pretty pronounced effect and of course those areas where there aren't the urchins, you see lots of macroalgae coming back in and growing pretty rapidly and pretty contentedly in those areas. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, it's, it's so good to know that, you know, you know, people can like physically doing something can actually have an impact like that. Yeah. So yeah. What, are, what? How do you actually cull urchins? Uh, urchins are pretty straightforward. All you do is you get a hammer and you bash them, and they, they split apart, and that's it. But you have to you have to be out diving in the water Correct. to do it. Yeah. It's yeah. best to do definitely best to do yeah. scuba diving as opposed to snorkeling. Yeah. Um, if you the thing with snorkeling where you got to be a bit careful is if you're constantly going up and down, and then you you know you're quite motivated to get as many urchins as you can. You're always at that risk of shallow water blackout. So oh, that's yeah. where we look 
look at uh, getting the scuba divers in. Mm. We go along and count the numbers of urchins in this plot, basically zigzag up and down the plot, mm. and we count the number of urchins, then go back along with the hammer, or, or as we're doing, of course, and then just clunk them with the hammer. Now, the, the thing is, by doing it that way, you uh, it's, it's a bit of a paradox because you've got this potentially valuable urchin row, uh, or more correctly, the gonad. Mm. Um, the, the, you know, there's a, there's a nice potentially valuable resource there. And, of course, we're not harvesting it because it's a marine sanctuary, marine protected area. Personally, I'd love to see one day where we can tweak the legislation in such a way that you can take those, you can t- send them off to a processor, and the uh, the, the the money that's uh, that, that comes in from that can be, or a percentage of it, can be punched back into the marine sanctuaries. Um, yeah, things like enforcement and all that sort of thing, I think it's always good to have um, you know people keeping an eye on the water to make sure it is, in fact, a marine sanctuary, when we quite often see boats coming in way too close and, and fishing. So, uh, you know, things like that I'd love to see one day. But whether Sounds like a great idea. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see it happen, but whether or not we can, because you've got the National Parks Act and all that, yeah. uh, all the, the legislative changes. But, um, yeah, it'd be good to make use of our resources, you know, to mm. harvest them rather than just whacking them with a hammer and leaving them to rot. Mm. Yes, some snapper will come along and they'll clean it up and you'll get a lot of scavengers that'll munch on it. So it probably doesn't cause massive water quality degradation or anything, but it's, no question it's a wasted resource. Mm. Yeah. And they are a native species. That's the other thing too, see. Uh, some of my students were sort of uh, at Melbourne Polytechnic and La Trobe Uni were looking at it and thinking, you know, these things are almost evil critters that are going along as well. No, they're not. They're, they're actually, um, you know, they were here before we were. They're the natives. Mm. And why is the system out of balance? You can mm. almost certainly put it down to man-made change, you know, mm. uh, anthropogenic change that's been going on in these areas and causing real issues. Yeah, isn't it interesting how when, you know, humans get get involved we we disrupt the balance and even it's native species that become the problems that's not it's not always the creatures that come from overseas that cause the problems exactly right exactly right it's always us in the end i reckon if you're finding you know what the source of the problem is you probably just have to look in the mirror anyway i think we'll break it up a bit but how about we go to a song uh this is uh, a mob who's actually coming to melbourne pretty soon which i'm very excited about this is my uh my all-time favorite band this is faith no more uh from their soul invictus album and this particular song is called separation anxiety is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. 
Um, I just wanted to remind everyone again that um, this we're running our subscriber drive at the moment, just encouraging you to sign up as a subscriber to 3CR or renew your subscription. Um, without your support, we couldn't bring you stories like those that we're talking about today. They're important stories about what we can do to stop the destruction of our environment. So to support this mission, you can become a subscriber, 3CR subscriber, or renew your subscription at www.3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Very good. And uh, James, just back to what we were talking about before, uh, what can we actually do about all this? We were just talking a minute ago off air about how, uh, you know, I made the comment that I feel very small when we start talking about climate science and these sorts of things, because, you know, if Mother Nature wants to have her way, there's <laughs> only so much you can do about it. I mean, these are, these are uh, you know, global events that we're talking about. Uh, what can we actually do, you think, to, to try and address this uh, imbalance that's crept into the system? Yeah, I know. It can make you feel very insignificant, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. It? Like it's yeah. um, when you start thinking about all these huge systems related to the ocean and the atmosphere and how they're changing and, you know, yeah, it does make you feel very small in it. I mean, it doesn't help in Australia that we have a fairly recalcitrant government um, when it comes mm. to these things. So, you know, we know that um, the federal government um, was a bit delayed in its in its response to the bushfires. And then when it, the conversation moved on to more about what do we do about climate change, um, the Prime Minister was very particular in emphasising adaptation to climate change. So making sure that, you know, all our systems and, um, you know, our food systems, water systems, that they're all, they can all cope with things like extreme weather and bushfires. And that is, that is very, very important. But the main thing with that is that you can't adapt to, we can't, we can't adapt to climate change if we don't stop it. Yep. So climate change is going to continue, but we ultimately have to stop it and we have to stop it getting past a point that we can't adapt to because there is a point of climate change that we can't adapt to. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, um, I would have thought that's the case. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, you know, I mean, as part of these conversations, the Prime Minister, you know, did announce a few measures, a partnership with the New South Wales government um, and things like that. Um, but it's not really enough. So, um, you know, there's, there needs to be more needs to be done. And um, there's going to be a National Day of Action next February um, at the State Library of Victoria from 2pm. It's organised by um, the Climate Justice Alliance and Extinction Rebellion and a few other groups. Um, and, they're, and they're calling for, um, you know, five major things. They're calling for 100% renewable energy by 2030. Um, they don't want to see any new fossil fuel or nuclear projects. And they want to end subsidies to those industries. Um, and that's so they want to see a phase out of fossil fuels by 2030. The second thing they want to see is they want to see a just transition for communities and guaranteed jobs for affected fossil fuel workers. Um, that's really important because, um, you know, the federal government's been offering things like support for, you know, new coal power stations in inland Queensland. Mm -hmm. You know, communities that are dependent on coal, um, again, like the Latrobe Valley, it's really important that we don't leave those communities out um, when we're talking about transitioning. Um, we also need to, the third thing is we need to find some more funding for our firefighting services. Um, as we saw in the current bushfire season, um, you know, there were delays with getting equipment from overseas and maybe we could have some of that equipment here in Australia already. Um, and there's some things around paying firefighters and making sure that there are enough on the ground. Um, they, the fourth thing they're calling for is First Nations justice, and that's making sure that, you know, um, Indigenous-led land management is central to everything that we do around, um, you know, um, adapt, um, 
fighting climate change mm-hmm. um, and repairing ecosystems and all that sort of thing and making sure Indigenous people are central yeah, um, yeah. To, these, to these issues. And the fifth thing um, they're calling make the climate criminals pay. So they're put, well, asking for a levy on fossil fuel companies. Um, and this is a thing that's, you know, um, the Australia Institute has been calling for, putting a levy on fossil fuel exports. And obviously that's going to make fossil fuels more expensive and ultimately make them a bit less competitive. Um, so I think all of those things are pretty reasonable demands. I think the um, 100% renewables by 2030 is say, fairly ambitious. ambitious. <laughs> it's fairly ambitious, but um, a couple of states are already hitting to around 50% now. Yep. Um, so as long as investment in renewable energy and um, you know tightening up the electricity grid continues then maybe it's possible but anyway it's a good thing to aim for i reckon yeah yeah, yeah. well it yeah, can't sometimes hurt. sometimes it's better to set the bar high and then if you do fail well you know it's, it's better than you've had a go ridiculous exactly ridiculously low ankle level thing that you can easily hurdle over by using a few bureaucratic tricks it's exactly. probably not the way to go anyway that's fantastic james thanks very much for that mate that was a uh, really fascinating stuff i learned a lot today by being in the studio uh we're out of time for uh, yet another week of out of the blue so So uh, stay tuned for Sally with Out of the Pan. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.